I invite you to turn with me your Bibles to our text today. Again, continuing, uh, coming to a very near time to the ending of this brief series on fighting the spiritual warfare and battle against the enemy. But again, reminding us where we have departed from our text and in doing so, Daniel 10, 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. This uh, most likely is Gabriel, who withstood the prince of the kingdom of Persia, a spiritual being, and Michael, likewise, a spiritual uh, being here that uh, one of the chief princes, uh, one of, uh, called uh, in Jude the archangel, uh, has come to help and assist uh, Gabriel in this spiritual battle by way of influence upon the king of Persia uh, to bring about a favorable influence upon Israel rather than destruction upon Israel. And so again, that spiritual warfare, which goes on uh, in nations even now, that same spiritual battle, that same spiritual warfare, but we have focused upon how that spiritual warfare goes on within our own lives. Uh, that has been our concern uh, in this uh, brief detour uh, from our text in Daniel. I do think that we will be having one more sermon uh, on this subject next Lord's Day, God willing, at which time we will then return to Daniel chapter 10. And so from Ephesians 6, 17, which again we are considering by way of this spiritual warfare and the whole armor of God that God has given to us. And today we come to verse 17, and let's again begin with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. <clears throat> Lord Jesus does not send us into this spiritual battle against the enemy, a formidable foe, 
namely Satan, without first equipping us with armor and a weapon that he knows are powerful to defend us and to defeat the enemy. 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You see, dear ones, he does not send us into battle to fight in a hopeless cause, which we cannot win, or to face a certain massacre in which we cannot stand and cannot overcome the attacks and temptations of the devil that are brought against us. No matter how difficult the struggle we face in overcoming the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we must continually be assured of these two things. First, the victory and final outcome have already been won by the Lord Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection. That's what we're taught in Colossians 2.15. Through his death upon the cross, he triumphed over his enemies. And we are in him, and he's in us. But also, we must also be assured, secondly, that the spiritual armor that Jesus has already purchased for us, that we don't have to go out and buy, he purchased it for us, it's in the armory, it's waiting for us to use it in our daily lives, is mighty in defeating the enemy when it is daily put on. That's what we were taught in Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 13. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Neither of these truths that I've just mentioned are mere speculations. This is not the power of positive thinking. These are invincible and unchangeable truths of our great God who cannot lie. Put on the whole armor of God and you will be able to stand against the wiles, the temptations, the attacks of the enemy. Beloved, when we feed our minds upon these truths, when we receive them as ours, purchased by Christ, as ours, as a part of our inheritance in Christ, when we receive them by faith, and when we go forth, not leaning upon our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, we will resist the enemy and he will flee from us. That's the promise in James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will, not might, he will flee from you. Resist. In other words, take this battle seriously. 
Resist. Don't fall asleep on guard, on duty, as did the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Resist. Put on the whole armor of God, not one piece or two pieces, the whole armor of God. Resist. Don't give an inch to the devil. For if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. Resist, dear ones, in the power of the Holy Spirit, who is greater than any enemy or any temptation. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Dear ones, the devil will tempt us to think, and it's one of his ploys, he'll tempt us to think that it is hopeless, it is hopeless to fight against those temptations, those besetting sins, those addictions, those sinful habits that we have. He will tempt us to, to believe that it's hopeless. That we cannot win. But understand, that is a lie. A lie of Satan, who is the father of lies. So the question comes down to, who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe God, who cannot lie, who assures us that we are more than conquerors through Christ? who loved us and does love us, or are we going to believe the father of lies who only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy? Dear ones, let us daily, by faith, put on the whole armor of God. Our main points today are these two, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. First of all, the helmet of salvation. <clears throat> and take the helmet of salvation, we are told. The command, again, from the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, take the helmet of salvation. We've already considered Paul's command, which is not a suggestion, but an imperative Stated twice in Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 13, which we just read, to put on the whole armor of God. Which we've already covered uh, some of that armor. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the boots of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and now the helmet of salvation. And later on in the sermon, the sword of the Spirit. As noted previously, Paul was imprisoned when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians. He was imprisoned at Rome. And as Paul considers the physical armor won or worn by the soldiers of the Roman legions, the most powerful military force upon the face of the earth at that time, the Holy Spirit directs him to liken the physical armor 
of the Roman soldier to the spiritual armor of the victorious believer in Jesus Christ. The helmet of the Roman soldier was usually of leather on the inside and of brass on the outside. And like other pieces of the armor that are spoken of here, it was not an optional piece of armor. It was absolutely necessary piece of armor for it protected the head from arrows, from spears, from rocks, from clubs that could severely injure the soldier in the midst of battle. Why does the Apostle Paul liken the Roman helmet to the believer's salvation? Take the helmet of salvation. Well, first of all, when we neglect or when we forget to put on the helmet of salvation, we are as vulnerable to serious spiritual injury as the Roman soldier that neglects or forgets or, or loses his helmet in the midst of battle. Secondly, just as the enemy would seek to disable the Roman soldier by going for his head, that most vulnerable part of his body, going for his head, so our spiritual enemy, the devil, seeks to disable us by going for our head so that we cannot spiritually think, spiritually believe, spiritually hope in Christ who is our salvation. He goes after our thinking, our reasoning, according to God's word. Another question, what is this salvation? This helmet of salvation. What is this salvation that is to cover and is to protect our heads, our minds, our thinking, against the spiritual attacks and temptations of the devil. Well, actually, salvation consists of three aspects. Three aspects of salvation. Past, present, and future. That we are, again, to cling to by faith. That we will find, as we are assured of these three aspects of salvation, that we wear as a helmet, that we will find, in so doing, that the Lord does indeed protect us against the attacks and the temptations of the enemy. You see, dear ones, our salvation in Jesus Christ is not a potential salvation but it is an actual salvation, it is a certain salvation in the past, in the present, and in the future. First of all, the past. Past aspect of salvation. That's summarized in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's the past aspect of salvation. 
through faith in Christ, we have been saved from all the guilt and the full penalty of sin. Once and for all, we are forgiven by God as judge. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's our justification. Once and for all settled by the judge. Then there is the present aspect of salvation. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. That salvation which the Lord has worked within, we are to work out presently. All we who have been justified by faith alone and Christ alone are presently being saved from the power of sin in our lives daily. Sin no longer has dominion over us. It cannot simply tell us what to do and we, as its slaves, follow what sin tells us to do, what temptation to sin tells us to do. We have been set free so that it is no longer our master. That's the present aspect of salvation. That's our sanctification. Justification in the past, sanctification in the present. And then the future aspect of salvation. In Matthew 10, 22, Jesus said, And ye shall be hated of all men, for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Shall be saved. He who endures to the end of tribulation, to the end of temptations, to the end of trials, to the end of afflictions and heartaches in this life shall be saved. He who perseveres to the end shall be saved by way of that future, glorious, eternal salvation, where we'll be saved from the presence of sin. When we are ushered into the very presence of God, where all temptation and where all sin will be forever gone, removed. That's our glorification. Justification, sanctification, glorification. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, Paul likewise uses the helmet and the armor of a Roman soldier, and he uses it, uses it in this way, wherein he says, But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. In this verse, the, it's the hope of salvation that is the, the helmet 
that we are to put on and to wear. The emphasis is upon that future hope of eternal salvation that is ours, that is reserved for us, that is our inheritance, which we need to be assured of that future hope of salvation. Not only of that past aspect of salvation, not only of the present aspect of salvation, but that future hope of eternal salvation when we die. Let's distinguish just very briefly between biblical hope and biblical faith. Biblical faith is resting what Jesus has already accomplished in our salvation through his death and his resurrection. However, biblical hope is resting in what Jesus shall bring to pass in our salvation through his death and resurrection. Both biblical faith and biblical hope look to the promise of God. That's what faith trusts in. That's what hope trusts in. The promise of God. Faith trusts the promise of God presently, while hope trusts and looks to the promise of God for that future time. It could be, again, future to our earthly existence, in other words, things that are in the future while we are here on the earth, or it could refer to that which is uh, in the distant future. It could refer to the future after death. Biblical hope, understand, is built upon biblical faith. And yet, biblical faith in Christ will lead us to biblical hope. They are, not, they are distinguishable from one another, but they're not separate from one another. Biblical hope is, and listen to the definition, biblical hope is a certain expectation that God will keep his word about the future. Faith is trusting in God presently and what he has promised. Biblical hope is a certain expectation based upon the promise of God that he will keep his word in the future. If we only look back in faith to see what Jesus has accomplished for us. But do not look forward and hope to see what he shall accomplish in the future. I believe we will find ourselves faltering and falling before many temptations that the enemy brings against us. For it is our certain hope <clears throat> that we will win. It is our certain hope that we will finish the race. 
It is our certain hope that there is laid up for us a crown of glory that keeps us going, that keeps us fighting the enemy, that keeps us rising again and again when we fall. It's that certain hope. We will simply, dear ones, give up and quit if there is not the hope of overcoming that sin or that habit. If there is not hope of healing that broken relationship. If there is not hope in finding help for that financial need. If there is not hope in persevering through that trial or that affliction, we will give up. We'll surrender. That's why we need the hope of salvation as a helmet that we put on. For dear ones, hopelessness and despair is not, is not the lot of the Christian. That's not the inheritance of the Christian. The inheritance of the Christian is hope, a certain confident expectation that God will keep his word. Not only as he did in the past, not only as he is presently, but he will keep his word in the future. For we, dear ones, serve the God of hope. That's how he describes himself. That's how he's described the God of hope. In Romans 15.30, Now the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. That ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. He's the God of hope and he wants us to abound in hope. God is absolutely sovereign. Almighty, all-powerful. Nothing is impossible with our God. For us to draw any restrictions or boundaries to God is to blaspheme God. God works that which is impossible to man. He cannot lie. His promises are ever true. We lie. We are unfaithful. But God it never lies. It is impossible for God to lie. He is never unfaithful to his word. The hope of salvation, dear ones, is so needed by us, especially when we are struggling, as we all do, struggling against the temptations of the enemy who wants us to do what is contrary to the will of God. We need to be able to see in all of our struggles that light at the end of a very dark tunnel. We all need hope. We need to know as God's people that our God is in control. Our God who loves us is in charge. It's not the wicked that are in control. It's our God who has promised to be our God until the very end. 
And we especially need that hope, dear ones, as death draws near unto us. And every day that we live, it's drawing nearer and nearer to us. I don't want to be on that deathbed without hope. That there is a certain confident expectation that I am assured of that beyond death, the Lord Jesus will usher me into his presence by way of his holy angels, my soul, carry it into his very presence. Don't you want to be assured of that hope? Well, it doesn't just happen out of thin air. If you do not want that hope now, when you don't know when you're going to die, to want it when you think you are going to die is a total contradiction and inconsistency. How we develop and how we have that hope when we are about to die is by having it while we are yet alive. Every day, putting on the helmet of the hope of salvation. And yet, I would also caution us it's not biblical hope to tell God how he must meet what we think we need. He's God. He is Lord. And we are his redeemed servants. We hope in what he has promised in his word to us. We hope in knowing that he will always give us what is good, and he will deny to us what is not good for us, or at least not good for us right then and there at that time. Biblical hope, dear ones, does not restrict what God can do. But biblical hope at the same time does not tell God what he must do and how he must do it and when he must do it. Biblical hope looks to God to fulfill his promises in his own good time. That is why, dear ones, it is so important for us to know and to be filled with God's word. For it is his promises found in Holy Scripture in which we hope. We hope in his word. Which brings us to the sword of the Spirit. In verse 17, Ephesians 6, 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The kind of Roman sword that is in view here is not the large sword that required two hands to use it, to forcefully swing it. That's in the Greek language called a romphia, romphia. 
but it is rather the sharp, short, two-edged sword that was kept in the scabbard on the belt to which Paul here refers, called in Greek, Machaira. This is the only offensive weapon in our battle that Paul gives against the temptations of the enemy. All of the other is defensive armor. Why? Because we are to stand. We are to defend the territory that Jesus has already purchased, that he has already won, over which he is already Lord and King, whether it's in our own hearts, whether it's in our families, whether it's in the church or the nation, we defend, we stand with that defensive armor for the Lord Jesus as king over all. But this is an offensive weapon, the sword. In our offensive attack against the enemy, we are not to try to out-debate to outwit, to outreason the devil by simply using the mere words of men. You see, the devil wants us to use the mere words of men against him. That's what he wants us to do. He doesn't want us to use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God against him because when we use the word of God that's resisting him in the way that God's appointed and he will flee from us he wants us to use the secular humanism of psychology to fight against those temptations or the so-called experts of this world to fight against those temptations within us. He has no problem with that. But what he doesn't want us to use is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, the words of mere men are useless. However, Paul calls us to use that which is not only useful, but victorious to battle the temptations of the devil. Because here we find that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is living and pierces into the very soul of a person, according to Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is quick, that is alive, living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What that is simply saying is God's word pierces to our soul. It pierces to our innermost being. It tells us who we are without Christ. It tells us who we are in Christ. It tells us the, the armor that we have in Christ, our inheritance about 
the salvation that Jesus Christ has purchased for us, past, present, and future. This is how the Lord Jesus himself battled the devil. He didn't bring forth the mere wisdom of men to battle the devil. When he was tempted so severely in the wilderness, what did he use? Well, Jesus countered every temptation of Satan with, It is written. And then he quoted from the Old Testament, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. You see, dear ones, that is our strength. Again, not the vain philosophies of the world, but thus saith the Lord. We're fighting spiritual enemies. They don't care anything about the philosophies of this world. They want us to embrace that. If we're going to fight spiritual enemies, we need and we must use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If we are to be effective, however, in using the sword of the Spirit, that is, the word which the Spirit of God has inspired, Holy Scripture, we can't use that which we are unfamiliar with. You can't use a sword effectively if you don't know how to use, if you have never practiced. If you haven't uh, had those times of, of being able to uh, practice with uh, others, and how to use the sword. We must be familiar with God's word. It cannot be a stranger to us. We must understand God's word. You see, this is not something mechanical and robotic, where we simply just utter certain words without meaning, without faith, without love, as if it's the words themselves are magic. It's not, the words aren't magic. But God, by, by way of faith and trust in those words, that God himself has given those words, and he is mighty to use those words to defeat the enemy. And so we must study God's word. Read it, study it, meditate upon it. We must write it upon our doorposts and other places in our house by way of sticky notes. We must memorize God's word so that, again, we can pull out our sword at any time, on any occasion, and use it against the enemy's temptations. Let me give you some examples briefly in, in how to use the sword of the Spirit. 
when you're tempted by the enemy. When the devil tempts us that we are too sinful to come to Christ, that we have sinned away all the mercy of God, we take the sword of the Spirit. It is written in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 16, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. When Satan tempts us that we are all alone in facing this powerful uh, temptation, we pull out the sword of the Spirit. It is written in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly declare, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. When our adversary tempts us that he is too strong and that there are too many of them that stand against us, and it's a hopeless battle, we lift up the sword of the Spirit it is written in 1 Samuel 14, 6. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. We lift up the sword of the Spirit in Romans 16, 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. When the liar tempts us, that we cannot resist this, this temptation because we have fallen so many times into the same temptation before we pierce him with the sword of the Spirit. It is written in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. When that great fear monger, Satan, tempts us to panic about our circumstances or about our relationships with others, we slay the dragon with the sword of the spirit it is written in Isaiah 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. When that behemoth of discouragement and despair tempts us to give up, because we are so weary and so tired in our struggle against 
these afflictions, these trials, these temptations, we quit not. But we take the sword of the Spirit and we thrust the sword of the Spirit into our enemy's heart. It is written in Galatians 6, 9, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap. We shall reap if we faint not. Likewise, in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Not some things. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. When the blasphemer tempts us to think that our need is greater than God's resources, we resist the devil with the sword of the Spirit. It is written... In Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Not some. He will, he will supply all your need. And is his supply limited? Is his supply small? No. It's according to all of the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And one last, and you can supply, no doubt, many other temptations and how to use the sword of the Spirit. But this one, I close the examples with. When the accuser of the brethren assails us with fear as we draw near to death, we silence him with the sword of the Spirit. It is written... In Psalm 16, 11, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And likewise, in Psalm 116, 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You ever wonder why we... and if you have observed, if you have, I hope, carefully noted, we fill our worship service from beginning to end with God's word. From the call to worship to the prayers, we incorporate God's word in the prayers. In the singing of psalms, we sing his word unto him. In the scripture reading from the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, in the sermon, the text that is preached, and all of the passages of Scripture to which we refer to compare Scripture with Scripture, to the benediction, the blessing at the end of the service. Why do we do that? Worship, dear ones, is not about us. It's not trying to put forward the most novel innovation or ideas of man. Worship is about glorifying God. And God wants us to worship according to his word. He wants us to worship by offering back to him the word that he has given to us. Worship is, dear ones, thinking God's thoughts after him. 
worshiping him in only the way that he has appointed in his word. That's why God's word is central to worship. That's why God's word is central to our worship. Every Lord's Day. God's word is powerful. God's word strengthens us. It comforts us. It instructs us. It cleanses us. It conforms our thinking. It conforms our desires. It conforms our speech. It conforms our actions to Jesus Christ by his almighty spirit. Putting on the whole armor of God, dear ones, as we close. Putting on the whole armor of God, all the pieces that we have been looking at in Ephesians chapter 6 is the divine means God has appointed for us to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let us not be discouraged that we do not see full and complete victory over those temptations in our life immediately when we put on the full armor of God. Let us not become discouraged. That's what the enemy would want us to do. Oh, it doesn't work. Why would you continue doing that? There's nothing different about the temptations that come your way, and you still want to do them. And so the enemy would seek to dissuade us from taking up the full armor of God, the whole armor of God, and putting it on. But dear ones, when those temptations come, by God's grace, let us all the more say, no, I'm going to daily, by God's grace, put on the whole armor of God. God would have us to persevere and not to give up, to rise again when we fall, to carefully consider where and how the enemy tempts us. This is something we need to do, to consider how and where and what occasions the enemy particularly tempts us with those temptations to besetting sins and habits. And as we consider how he tempts us, where are we? What are we doing when that temptation comes that we might devise a holy plan? Consider a plan, a biblical plan, as far as how to, by God's grace, not put ourselves in those most tempting situations, but when, again, it's unavoidable, knowing how he has tempted us, we are forewarned. We know how to use, then, the armor of God against him in those situations. And lastly, let me simply say, let us draw near to the Lord in prayer and communion with Jesus Christ. Don't run from Jesus when you're under temptation. Don't hide from him like Adam and Eve did, but rather run to him. Daily prayer and communion with the Lord Jesus make the whole armor of God effective against the enemy. It's like the glue that holds everything together. 
we avoid prayer and communion with Christ, again, we're not going to see the effective use of the armor of God. And that's where we'll end, God willing, next Lord's Day, talking about, in verse 18, Ephesians 6, 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. We'll take up the matter of prayer in our battle against the enemy. God willing, next Lord's Day. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. O God of hope, we praise Thee and thank Thee for the hope that is in Jesus Christ. A hope for which the world continues to seek but cannot find. They find only darkness at the end of their tunnel. We find light at the end of our tunnel because of the hope and the promises of God, the faithfulness and power of our God. We praise thee, Lord. May we ever look to the, the promises of God, the sword of the Spirit, as we continue to walk in this world and fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, not turning to the vain philosophies of this world, no matter how well-spoken they may be. Lord, we have, in the word of God, in Jesus Christ, we have all wisdom and knowledge. And Lord, it is only the fact that we do not use it. It is only the fact we do not put it on, take it up as, as a sword, that we do not see the effectiveness of it. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Give to us uh, mightily of thy grace as we continue, Lord, in this fight, even to the very end, not giving up, not surrendering, not quitting because of the hope that is laid, the hope of salvation that is laid up before us. In Jesus' name, amen.